Lindsay. What is this? Where are we, Brian? Why am I whispering? This is What the Fup downloads from the Secret Ghost Library. And actually, I don't know why you're whispering. I normally speak of science and creativity as sort of being somewhat opposite, but they're not real. I mean, inherent in science is this notion, Heisenberg uncertainty principle, that, that talks about our limits on how we can observe things. And if we have something that we can predict, it becomes not creative at all, and it's science. Do you believe that there is a satanic worshiping group of people who are trafficking children and drinking their blood? So Obama's talking about all of this with the global warming and that and a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry, okay? It's a hoax. A lot of it. Brian? Lindsay. Happy Ghost Library Month, Brian. It is Ghost Library Month. Yeah. Are you doing anything to celebrate? You like starting an MLM or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been meaning to start that cult. And uh, <laughs> I think I will start it through selling um, ghost juice. Wow. That's my new MLM. I am in. I would love to be uh, in your downstream with the ghost well, juice. You know, if you, if you, you know how... <laughs> Um, you do know that uh, if you get in early, you can actually make money. You'd be like one of the seven people that make money. Oh, shit. I would love that. Hook me up. Uh, seven cases of ghost juice, please. What does it do, by the way? You know, it allows you to access ghosts and, you know, oh. walk through walls and do all that kind of cool shit. Jesus Christ. Okay. Sign me up for 14 cases. That's I will. fantastic. I will. Buy some of it myself. But you have to buy 14 cases a week. That's how it works, though. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, you keep yeah, up I your, got a lot of keep walls. Keep up your inventory. To, yeah, I got a lot of, wall, a lot of walls to, to walk through, so I'm, I'm totally cool with that. That sounds really good. Also, also, the other thing I want to add is that chimps are fascists. Really? Anarchism. Yes. it's a, Anarchism is against chimp nature. It's just, it's never going to work with chimps, Brian. How's, you can't make it. How did you figure that out? Um, I read a bunch of stuff about chimps and how they're fascists. Ah. Yeah. All right, well. <laughs> Checkmate. I'm st st striking chimps off my list for the revolution. Allies in yeah. the revolution. I mean, they're good fighters, but they're they're not real good cooperators, apparently. That sucks. What about bonobos or bonobos? I always say bonobo. Yeah, they're probably fine. Okay. Yeah. I actually, I don't know how cooperative they, anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> but they're not anarchists. I'm pretty sure about that. Um, so, uh, yeah, so today is part two of our three-parter on anarchism. Yay. Very exciting. And we are talking about the objection to anarchism on the basis that it is too optimistic about human nature. It'll never work because humans are selfish assholes, <laughs> selfish assholes, not selfish assholes. Well, either or. That as long as they're not chimps, that's all right. Exactly, right? Um, yeah, so some folks make this point. I took the lead on, on this particular episode, and I think we had a really good conversation about some of the evidence against that argument. So 
hopefully folks will enjoy that. We did. We did. I, I had a lot of uh, half-formed arguments in my own head, so it was very good for me to hear some actual research and, and, and thoughts on that. Brief clarification that I wanted to make. There's, there's a moment in the conversation when we're talking about um, estimates that have been made about how large the human population would have gotten if we had remained hunter-gatherers, and I feel like I fumbled this point a little bit. So the point that was being made in the article that I was referencing, and this was by Hill, Barton, and Hurtado, it was published in 2009, got a link in the show notes. Um, the point that they were making is that some people have argued that post-industrialization societies were responsible for the remarkable success of our species and mm-hmm. the fact that we experienced such population growth. But estimates suggest that actually hunter-gatherer societies would have achieved a population of something like 70 million, which, you know, it's a, it's a fraction of our current population, uh, but that would have been more biomass than any other species on the planet. Right. Um, so that's their, that's their projection if we had not kept inventing agriculture mm-hmm. <laughs> as humans sp- spread around the planet. So the point is, pre-industrial, pre-agricultural hunter-gatherer societies actually do quite well for themselves. Thank you very much. Right. They wouldn't have dwindled out. And at exactly. 70 million, they probably wouldn't have destroyed the planet either. Right. Yeah. That would have been a nice thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, well. But anyway, so I, I just wanted to clarify that because I, I don't think that point was really made clearly in, in the episode. But other than that, I think it was a delightful conversation. It was. So we're going to get on over that, to that, Brian. But yes, before we do, uh-huh. we have some thank yous to new patrons. Oh, we do. We do. We have two new patrons. Yay. Our first new patron is Dr. Sparkle Pants. Ah, very special <laughs> patron. Happens Indeed. To, happens to be my fiance, but. Oh, that's so sweet, Brian. Isn't it? And, and with <laughs> such a great Sparkle name, Pants. too. Yeah. It is a great name. I loved it. And I also liked that Doctor was like in all caps. It's like Dr. Sparkle yeah, Pants yeah. to you, motherfucker. That's right. <laughs> that seems on brand. Yeah. So thank you, Dr. Sparkle Pants. And also thank you to Chicken. Chicken is our second new patron. How is it we have the we have the best people? Our patrons have the best names. Have you noticed that? Like I have noticed that. Yeah. Thank you <laughs> very fantastic. much, Chicken. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, and Chicken also recommended that we check out Thought Slime and Curio on YouTube, who apparently have really good anarchist slash communist related content. So I have not checked that out yet because I'm dying of academia, but. Once I'm done doing that, I do intend to check out that content. It sounds very interesting. Yes. Yeah, so thank you very much again to Dr. Sparkle Pants and Chicken. And um, and also thank you to all of our patrons because this is a very exciting month. It is. We, we made a major purchase. And you know what? It's been a long, long time since I've had a $100 bottle of bourbon. So I want to say <laughs> thank you. No, we're just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> I mean, we we had a hundred dollar bottle of bourbon, but it was just from other sources. That's right. No, if if Brian sounds somewhat different to you this month, it's because thank you, patrons, we were able to buy uh, Brian some some new audio equipment, and uh, wow, that is some sparkling clear audio you got there, Brian. It is. It's some sparkle pants, sparkling audio. It's. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I was having podcast envy, to be honest, because I've been listening to these other podcasts and thinking, man, you know, they have such great sound quality. And then, and our, ours has been pretty good. But, but we want to get I up do there. Do my best. I, well, yes, you you've worked wonders. It's the problem's been on my end. So, um, it's been really nice to have uh, the right equipment 
And so from now on, we're going to have really good audio. So we're going to, we're mm-hmm. going to move, we're moving into the big leagues is what's yeah. Watch out. Yeah. Top. Pipe. I feel like we're about to blow right. up. I'm pretty excited. Watch out behind the bastards. We're coming for you. Yeah. So if anybody was like not telling their friends about this podcast because of audio, you can tell your friends now. That's right. Yeah. That's I mean, legit. and I have to say there's a few podcasts I've listened to and the audio has been a little bit spotty and I have to really, really like the material. It's not, you know, and it's just, it just detracts from the enjoyment, especially yeah, if you're no. in your car or something and trying to listen. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So thank you, patrons. Yes. This is, this is all you. It is. <laughs> um, yes. And if you would like to become a patron, you could do that at patreon.com slash fuppod. That's F-U-P pod. You can email us with uh, emails about how good our audio is at fuppod at gmail.com. You could tweet her at us at fuppod. And you can join our Facebook discussion group. We've gotten several new members in the last month. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really fun bunch of folks over there. So yeah, check that out. Great. And we really would like a $100 bottle of bourbon. So help us yeah. out. We should get like a P.O. box where people can send bourbon. Ah, that's a good idea. <laughs> All right. I'll work on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Should we do it, Brian? Let's go. First, I became a woodworker by myself because I, I was obsessed with it. And then it became a little business and I hired employees. And I said, you know, we're not here to make as much money as we can. Like we might as well go work at a factory or pour concrete, neither of which are super fun. Like I want you guys to have a good life. Eight people with one beer each is so much better than one guy with eight beers. <laughs> it's the together and the work that is even more important than the pay you receive at the end of it. Lindsay. Brian. Hey, I, I switched things up. Because I'm an anarchist, so I had to try to throw you a loop there. I was very surprised. I didn't know what was happening. (laughs) So we have been talking about, or last episode, we talked about Two Cheers for Anarchism by um, James C. Scott. Mm -hmm. Um, And we kind of laid out, I would say laid out at least our impressions of the salient points, um, what we took out of it. And now we're going to get into some criticisms of anarchism that are often leveled, I would say, at it as an ideology and a practice. Mm -hmm. And I think this is going to lead us into some interesting psychology territory. I think so. Um, Yeah, especially because we always get those human nature arguments, which I I really detest. And uh, we should make a comment, though, that uh, when we were talking before, that he has a really cool organizational structure instead of having chapters he has fragments yeah it, it, you could say it's a it's a it's a unorganizational structure right there's something very right. anarchistic about the way he's he's done this book it is it is I'm glad you pointed it out <laughs> so i want to start with um a quote from fragment seven which is entitled the resilience of the vernacular because uh, it brings up these uh, issues that we're going to address so here's the quote It is perfectly clear that large-scale modernist schemes of imperative coordination can, for certain purposes, be the most efficient, equitable, and satisfactory solution. Space exploration, the planning of vast transportation networks, 
airplane manufacture, and other necessarily large-scale endeavors may well require huge organizations minutely coordinated by a few experts. Mm -hmm. The control of epidemics or of pollution requires a center staffed by experts receiving and digesting standard information from hundreds of reporting units. And we've mm -hmm. clearly seen absolutely no problems with the coordination of an epidemic in recent times. And have we? Okay, but in principle, he's right. Well, right? Uh, no, I'm, the problem is not the coordination. It's the problem is that people not actually taking advantage of... Not actually coordinating. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because, uh, you know, there there were examples... I know New Zealand's a pretty small country, but there were examples of of this working, right? right and right. it being a really good thing that there was a mechanism for mass coordination. But anyway. Well, I mean, one could argue from an anarchist perspective that, you know, this notion of cooperation and mutual aid is not present in our society because... It is not uh, uh, a, an important piece of neoliberal capitalism, and in fact, um, mm -hmm. it's it's one of those pieces that is is either been uh, discouraged. I was going to say extinguished. I don't think it will ever be extinguished, but it's been it's it it actively works against that. Yeah, because it can't be commodified. No, I think that's right. You know, before we get into to the meat of this, I I, I wonder because I keep saying. I keep saying like, but you know, is X necessarily a problem of the state or is it Y, right? And uh, from what you just said, I wonder if like I'm drawing um, too much of a distinction between the state and like systems like neoliberal capitalism. Exactly. Right? Because yeah. I, 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 in my mind, have been making a big distinction between those things. Like there's, there's certain things, like when I think about what is discouraging people from cooperating, I am thinking explicitly about uh, features of our capitalist society um, that do that. But I am distinguishing that from like having a government or something. Well, take, for instance, the fact that producing uh, a vaccine on a large scale very quickly is potentially a money losing proposition, right? Yes. Like, and so when we, we look at, you know, if, if our, our goal, as it is Bill Gates' goal, is to monet, commodify and monetize everything, then we're going to get this, uh, we're going to have equity issues, right? And so perhaps making it profitable is not the most important thing. Right. And then the mm -hmm. state could coordinate this thing. And yes, it might be inefficient. And I get it. States. I mean, I, I, I'm this frustrates me so much because I want to say I'm an anarchist and I'm taking the fucking vaccine. And, and, and the people that, again, are bellyaching about the you know government control and this being forced. It's just ironic to me as an anarchist because because they have lost any sense of mutual aid or cooperation. And yeah. I, I get it. I don't trust big pharma in many ways, but I think, you know, all right, I'm going to weigh the, the you know, we, we will do a cost-benefit analysis here. I'm going to weigh the options and say, this is something that I should do because it's better for me and everybody else. And yeah. I don't know. I just think that the issue here is is this lack of understanding of mutual aid and cooperation, despite the mistrust of the government. I mean, I, I don't, it doesn't mean that I trust the government because I'm doing this. I, it's just, it's just a bizarre uh, yeah. take on the whole thing. 
Well, it is, but you know what? I don't think it's a lack of understanding of mutual aid and cooperation. I think it's 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 evidence of very effective propaganda that is targeted to suppress those motives that under right. normal circumstances would not be controversial to anybody. Right. 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 Like they, it was, it, I think it was difficult to, uh, to create the narrative that Trump and, and the rest of, of the Republican party kind of, kind of perpetrated here. Absolutely. And, and that's, that was a, that's a very good distinction. I mean, yeah. the lack of understanding is really about the, the lack of experience with it because, or lack of the lack of understanding comes from what you're saying for sure. Yeah, and right. right. It's, Maybe. Not, it's not like an intuitive lack of understanding. You don't have to be taught about cooperation, right, essentially. Right. Um, or I, that's that's what we're going to talk about. But like, it, it's we we have natural inclinations to cooperate um, under many circumstances, and in order to well, it's just it's difficult to 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 suppress those in a lot of circumstances. I Ab- think absolutely. So let me bring up a. Uh, um, uh, uh, point here because I think it's going to uh, set the stage for you to talk about um, some of these uh, issues with people's psychology. And you know, what you just Mm -hmm. said was a very anarchist uh, way to look at it is that in fact, in fact, this quote, and I I, I really try not to use the word natural. Um, I don't like naturalism arguments, but these quote unquote natural tendencies, or let's say inherent right. Yes. Inherent, inherent, inherent psychological mechanisms. Um, are potentially being suppressed. Um, yeah, um, which is a very anarchist way of looking at things. The the first criticism that's always leveled at anarchists, which I think again will open the door for you to talk about some of these pieces, is that anarch- anarchism will never work. Um, and what they, when people say it'll never work, they mean it'll never work on a large scale. In my opinion, mm-hmm. so I think this becomes an issue of scale which we will talk about more later. But yeah. you get these arguments, you know, that people need laws and constraints or they would run wild. They'll murder and rape and steal. And, you know, I think it's important to take a step back from that and, and ask how true is this? How, how, how is that an accurate statement, right? Right. And this argument obviously has some serious holes. Like, let's take, for example, rape, right? If we remove the laws, it would become more prevalent as the argument goes. Yeah. And, you know, the first thing that I would say is, you know, if that's what's keeping you from raping someone, then you're a shitty person, right? Yeah. It's not, I, I can't think of a time when I was like, oh, well, yeah, as soon as this law is removed, then I'll just, you know, I'll just steal this thing. And, you know, I, mean, I had to teach my kids this who are like walking by somebody's house and wanting to pick their, the flowers. And I was like, you know, I, I understand, but. If you, t- you know, if everybody comes by and takes these one, one or two flowers, then they're all going to be gone. So yeah. let's just leave them here. I don't know. I mean, I think one could easily argue that the laws have done little to fix this problem. Mm-hmm. And, and not just for sociopaths, but for, fe- for people who find themselves with enough power to get away with it. Right. And yeah. that's, you know, I think that's an important point. No, I think it is too. And it's, um, and I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad that you're leading into it with that because, one of the so we're going to be talking about Thomas Ella's work again. We he came up first when we covered uh, the twin insurgencies. But one point that he makes is that um, you can think about law, right, or the criminal justice system. You know, through one lens, you can think about that as a reflection of like of of massive division division of labor that has happened. Right. It's like we we've all we've all sort of got these these inclinations that certain types of things are immoral and wrong and need to be punished. And, you know, in 
in pre-state kind of societies where there's there's sort of less explicit division of labor, it's kind of up to the group to do that norm enforcement. Um, but that we did see sort of an evolution of human society in, in terms of division of labor and saying, okay, we're going to designate these people to be the norm enforcers, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you're thinking about it from that perspective, it's not it's not really that if we didn't have laws against rape, everybody would rape. It's like the the law is sort of the um, it's a reflection of the agreement that we all know that rape is wrong, right? <laughs> and that we've agreed that these should be the penalties if somebody if somebody does that, right? Because violation is going to happen occasionally, obviously, right? right? So I think. Yeah, I think that that argument from the very beginning, you know, if there were no laws, everybody would would do crazy shit all the time is it's probably a misunderstanding of of what law represents or or how it came to be. Right. 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 Because, yeah, I mean, there's there's tons of examples of pre-state societies that that do their own enforcement. And there's lots of variability in terms of how they do that enforcement and what that looks like. But there there do seem to be certain universals in terms of. of, of what's considered a violation and how people think about that. So when we were planning for this episode, right, we were, we were talking about, about this criticism in particular um, about it'll never work because human nature and, you know, people murder and rape everybody if you don't have police or whatever. And so for me, it's, it's like there, there are several questions that are sort of built into that, that would address that, that criticism. So one is like, when do people cheat or exploit others, which obviously happens. And we talked about this during the twin insurgencies episode, right? Right. As long as there have been cooperative systems, there have always been cheaters because, you know, as, as, as successful and beneficial to everyone as cooperation is, cheating is also very beneficial. And so you get that sort of mutation of a strategy popping up every so often. Right. And so you've got co-evolution between cooperators and cheaters, right? So cheating or exploitation tends to happen under circumstances when the costs are particularly low and the benefits are high. But the thing is, is that because free riding, again, has been this persistent problem in, in our natural history, we have this suite of adaptations that are geared specifically toward detecting cheating and imposing costs, right? In other words, because we've co-evolved these defenses, we we find ourselves in a species that has mechanisms to keep the costs relatively high for cheating and keep the benefits relatively low under normal circumstances. Right. The potential issue here, I think, is whether societies as large as they are now and with stratified coordination here, hierarchy, as pronounced as it is now, whether those conditions um, or whether whether those create conditions under which exploitation is more likely to be wildly beneficial for some people, as well as creating conditions in which observation is far less likely than it would have been in the ancestral past. And th- these were ideas that we touched on in the twin insurgencies. Right. Absolutely. So again, we're getting back to the principle of scale and the notion mm-hmm. of, of scale and and in my mind, and again, I know I'm playing fast and loose with uh, these concepts, but that's what I do, is is that, you know, at a certain scale, um, you get a phase transition. You get yeah. a different animal, right? So, so um, a global society is not the same in some fundamental aspects as uh, a, a, a very localized and distributed one. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are some things that exist at that scale that do not exist at the lower scales, s- smaller scales, and vice versa. And so we're talking yes. about different animals. <laughs> yes, literally. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's one question, right? Mm-hmm. 
So in in one sense, this criticism isn't completely off base because yeah, right there there is architecture there that does promote defection, right? Uh, breaking of norms under certain circumstances, and and you know there are people that pop up every once in a while that just have a complete disregard for for norms, right? Right. I I don't think that that's typical though. That's not quote unquote human nature. It's an exception. Yeah, good. Isn't this the um, uh, availability heuristic? You know, um, perhaps in that, in that, you know, you, everyone remembers, you know, the sociopath and the serial killer and they say, well, yeah. what about that? And it's like, mm-hmm. well, guess what? You know, whether you have laws or not, you're going to have sociopaths and serial killers. And exactly. the question is, you know, do the, do, do the laws and the structures, um, actually constrain these people? Are they effective? And many would argue, no, they don't. Yeah. Or if they do, it's not the primary thing they're doing. Right, right. The primary then, thing they're doing is putting black people in jail for having weed. So Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's one one question that arises from this. Um another one is like what does norm enforcement look like in the absence of the state, right? And we we've talked about this a little bit a second ago, right? Like mm-hmm. in terms of external mechanisms for enforcing norms. What these look like vary widely across cultures, but the universal thing in here is that there is norm enforcement. That is an absolute human universal, right? Shunning, violence, like all of these things um, essentially seem to have evolved primarily in, in terms of um, to, to enforce cultural norms, right? Or social norms, right? Right. Yes. Now, interestingly, that's just the external mechanisms. Interestingly, there also appear to be a large number of internal mechanisms, which we maybe we'll get into a little bit that help to enforce norms, right? So people essentially policing themselves through the experience of, of things like guilt and shame. It's interesting because some of the biggest criticisms I've heard of anarchist groups and organizations, and particularly from those who have been in them and gotten burned, is is one of their biggest complaints is this tremendous self-policing and the, and the uh, uh, highly normative character. I mean, and some people would argue that, it, you know, they think that anarchists are actually more conformist than other groups because, oh, back to that. Yeah, yeah, because, because they're, they're, they're enforcing this, enforcing these norms, right? Amongst yes. themselves and voluntarily, right? Yeah. And a lot of people run afoul of that, particularly if they have a very individualist anarchist approach, which is, I can do whatever I want, and they come up against this. And anyway, we'll yeah. go there. We'll go there. No, I, I love that. No, I've got I've got a pretty good amount of material that's explicitly about conformity that's built into Thomasello's uh, hypothesis here, and it's it's real. It's a it's a very interesting lens to look at that that phenomena through. Excellent. That is probably going to be a little bit alien to most people that live in highly individualistic societies, right? Conformity is kind of a four letter word, right? Um, so right. yeah. So that's norm enforcement, right? And the the last piece, and this is what I want to spend the most time on, is you know what what do we know about cooperation? What what produces it? How spontaneous is it? Or you know is it something that we we sort of have to learn in the same way that we have to learn algebra? Right. <laughs> um, so here's here's what I'm going to argue, right? And I think that this really is the most central piece to defending anarchism against this criticism that it's, you know, it's, it's too naive about human nature. So I think that anarchism does describe something that essentially looks like our pre-state version of cooperative living. And what I've, what I found in the additional reading I did to prep for this episode is that, you know, some anthropologists have actually argued, right? I mean, 
based on evidence, right? This isn't just about their their intuitions, that this this version of cooperative living actually may have been far superior in the promotion of human flourishing compared to what we saw after the advent of agriculture, which coincided with the establishment of states. Um, so I read I read one article in particular where they were they were projecting that if we hadn't transitioned into um, into agriculture, you know, sedentary agricultural groups, that the population, if we'd stayed as hunter gatherers, essentially that we're living in these um, in these cooperative groups, that the population estimates might have reached something like seventy million today. Right, and this is this is th- there is a definite tendency within anarchism, probably the post-anarchist or ontological anarchist um, kind of questioning civilization tendency um, mm-hmm. that states exactly that. There's uh, John Zerzan's work. There's uh, Against History, Against Leviathan, by Freddie Perlman. And a lot of this is based on um, uh, Lewis Mumford and the myth of the machine that we'll get into mm. to yeah. later. But it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about this from psychology literature. Mm-hmm. When or anthropology, was, right. Uh, anthropology, gotta... right, right. Uh, that was most of whatever, and, and it, you know, Thomas L is in an interesting position because he he actually publishes a lot in anthropological outlets, but he is trained as like a, a cognitive and comparative psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that I love about his work because it's it's you know the methods that he used are like very traditional like experimental designs, you know, cognitive experimental stuff. Um, but he clearly has had also a lot of training in you know probably cultural anthropology evolutionary anthropology that allows him to just do some really interesting things at the intersection so i'm a big fan of michael tomasello but in, anyway so so i i would say and i think that scott would james scott would agree with this based on reading the prelude to, to two cheers i would say that the barriers to anarchism working are absolutely not within human nature i think that rather they're probably features of uh, large modern industrialized societies, right. and you know, they're problems some, of scale, perhaps. Yeah, I think that they're problems of scale. I think that they are. I think there's some more specific problems even than scale. Okay, that, that are operative here, um, that are created. You know, by neoliberal capitalism, and anyway, we'll we'll get into it, right? Um, but I think that yeah. So I think that the, they're features of of large modern industrialized societies. Some of which I think we need to to say right are probably desirable. Okay. And some of which are not, right? And I think the question is, like, how much are we willing to lose from the massive coordination that has been facilitated by industrialization? Right. And what are we willing to give up for the benefits of this different kind of societal structure, right? And, I, you know, maybe we're willing to give up quite a lot because it sounds fucking awesome, but I also don't want to romanticize and blah, blah, This is the uh, issue with climate change, right? And, and one of my favorite uh, thinkers on this is a guy, George Montpio. Been, he's been writing for The Guardian, I think, at least maybe since the 80s. I started reading him in the 90s. And um, now there are a lot of these people, a lot of people writing about this. But he was a long time ago, and he said there is no way, there is no way we can address this without reducing consumption, without fundamental mm-hmm. changes to our lifestyle, right? Like, yeah. there's, you know, all of this stuff about you know, uh, clean cars and, and et cetera, et cetera, it's not going to be enough. And he was saying that, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. And so, and, and of course this is, you know, where the pushback comes from is that then, you know, the right is saying, oh, well, you're trying to change our fundamental way of life. And you know what? We are because, because if we don't, 
we understand the consequences. So yeah, but. I, I I agree with that. But like I you know I I've heard that kind of line of thinking, and I, I know this is not what you mean by this, but I've heard that kind of line of thinking used to say like you know well if everybody would just stop using plastic bags, then we wouldn't have a litter problem. You're right. From the no. you know to blame no. people for so yeah, it's kind of a chicken or an egg situation with issues like this because like. Yeah, it is problems with our consumptive behaviors, but you know, most of us don't have a choice in how we consume given the structure that we find Ab- ourselves absolutely. in. Absolutely. That's addressing it at the wrong scale. That's addressing yes. it at the scale of the consumer and not right. at the scale of production and then looking at the economic relationships that 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 guide or constrain or govern production and consumption, right? Yeah. Which is far beyond the average consumer. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, recycling is a wonderful thing, but it ain't mm-hmm. going to solve the problem, right? No. And it, it's it's not. There's just and you've said this. I've heard you say this before, right? We've, it's got to be changed at a larger scale, which is a much it more. Does. Which is why I say it's a fundamental issue. It means addressing these things about neoliberal capitalism. Yes, so. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. So so the point that I want to focus on here. Um, to to counter this uh, this human nature argument is that fu- is that human nature is fundamentally uniquely and profoundly cooperative, and that the evidence for this is compelling to the point that it's a consensus position. And the hypothesis that I'm going to be talking about is just one hypothesis of several that has been put forward to explain why this is from a fitness standpoint. But, uh, you know, what I think I can say categorically is that there is overwhelming evidence that this is a a feature of our species that exists and needs to be explained. We are strikingly cooperative with with non-kin in particular. Yes. Before you get into this, are you familiar with a book by Kropotkin called Mutual Aid, A Factor of Evolution? That was written in in 1902. It was, it's it's a classic anarchist text. It was based on essays he wrote between 1890 and 1896. And I'll just give you a few points before you get into your, in, into your stuff. He looked at the animal and human kingdom. It was a, an argument against social Darwinism. It was an alternative to the historical materialism of Marxists, right? Um, he looked at indigenous early European societies and some of the free cities. And basically, he said that the state destroys mutual aid institutions via private property. That was hmm. kind of his argument. But I just think it's interesting that he was talking about this as a factor of evolution in 1900. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, well, as, as we were saying last episode, it's like the, a lot of this stuff is intuitive. I'm not I'm not saying that he was arriving to this purely through speculation, right? But but I think that these things are intuitive for a reason. So I think – so this is where I'm going to focus. And I think that this is uh, – this is – really important to talk about. And the reason for that is that as Scott touches on, right, an assumption for anarchism to be successful is in fact that humans, if left to their own devices, will spontaneously cooperate and collaborate, and that we don't need a state to tell us to be good. Right. And as, as we were talking about, some folks criticize this assumption, you know, directly, we're not going to be good unless we're coerced by the state. But the evidence I'm going to argue is very, very clear that that's not true. And mm-hmm. there's some some caveats that are worth covering. But I think the takeaway from the research we're about to discuss is that humans are um, not just cooperative, um, not just social, right? Because lots of species are cooperative and social, but that we are uniquely cooperative um, right. in the animal kingdom in, in ways that are, that are fairly profound. Um, and so if we see things in our society that seem to indicate otherwise, if we see people seeming to appear lazy, for instance, or unwilling 
to be charitable and helpful to others, I think that that's likely a symptom of some environmental problem. And that problematic environment is probably neoliberal capitalism. Well, I mean, what would you say about these sort of individual variation, right? If these if these traits are distributions along a, 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 a scale, I mean, I guess the argument is that the mean of this distribution uh, tends to excuse very heavily towards mutual aid and cooperation, mm -hmm. um, even though, of course, there are these outliers. So there's that piece to it. And then there's what you're saying, which is that if we're seeing a whole lot of it, then maybe it's something else, right? Where, 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 where if it appears that the, that the mean uh, of the distribution has shifted, that's an external factor. Yes, that, that is exactly right. Yeah, I would argue that it's because we find ourselves in an environment in which incentives are misaligned, for instance. Right. 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 Um, so, so yeah, we're going to talk about some specific mechanisms, I think, that will tie directly back to that that particular question. Okay, so again, we, we briefly talked about some points from Tomasello's 2014 paper, The Ultrasocial Animal, when we discussed the twin insurgency. Um, and I, I don't think it's any coincidence that Tomasello's interdependence, interdependence hypothesis, which he summarizes in this paper, is once again relevant in the context of James Scott's work. Um, and I hope that we'll have a little bit of time to touch on you know, some of that, that stuff about um, agricultural societies later on, because uh, that was really interesting. But um, so Tomasello's main thesis, he summarizes in this paper what he calls the interdependence hypothesis, which is a proposed solution to the problem of why humans are so uniquely, profoundly cooperative with non-kin. In the Twin Insurgencies episode, I, I think pretty much exclusively talked about essentially direct reciprocity. So right. trading favors over time for mutual benefit right. um, and, and the importance of cheater detection in a cooperative system. Interdependence theory suggests something beyond reciprocal altruism. Right. So this suggests that like, it's not, it's not saying we don't have those mechanisms so that those don't operate because they do, but it suggests that beyond just uh, mechanisms for reciprocal altruism, humans evolved additional unique collaborative and cooperative adaptations and that this happened in a two-step process. Right. So step one involved the development of cognitive and social capacities designed for collaborative foraging. Okay. So Tomasello posits that ecological changes that severely reduced or even eliminated uh, food resources that individuals could obtain on their own uh -huh. would have created pressures for humans to become obligate collaborators. Right. Meaning that individuals who could not or would not collaborate with others to obtain food would literally die. So right. obligate collaborators. Um, so that was step one, right? And, and we're going to dig into some of the specific things that he, he thinks happened at this step in our evolution. The second step was the scaling up of collaboration from just between a very small number of individuals, maybe even two individuals, maybe three or four, to collaboration among all members of a large cultural group. And some estimates put this number, right, that could have characterized human group size at the time that he's suggesting this took place. Some as some some estimates put this uh, on the order of like more than 500 individuals. So right. that would be like the larger cultural group, and then within that, you'd have these smaller tribal groups, right? Right. Of people that that sort of collaborate more often. So Tomasello posits that the increases in population size, so the broadening of the or the the increase in the size of of the cultural groups, plus increased competition with other human groups. Uh -huh. would have created additional specific pressures for adaptations to identify with and collaborate with the cultural group beyond one's local tribe. 
right? right. And that adds a, a very interesting extra layer here. And that's that's the part that we're going to get into the conformity stuff. It is interesting. I want to bring uh, uh, just an illusion. I want to allude to something which uh, I can't get into, and it's not going to be incredibly well-formed, but something that I've been fascinated with are uh, kind of uh, multicultural or areas of multicultural exchange and interchange historically. For instance, mm-hmm. um, you have in um, uh, Albania and um, uh, Serbia, and where all of that conflict is, that's that was a crossroads, right? Where multiple cultures came to interact. And again, I'm I'm probably not getting this history right, but I know that in that area there were these regions where you had people that were speaking different languages and different religious customs, and you know yeah. were considered of different races and all this, all interacting in in kind of a node. There, it was the intersection point between those different cultures, and mm-hmm. those are fascinating examples to me of 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 this phenomenon, right? Of, yeah. of, of people coming together. That's kind of where it happened on the ground in many cases was you, know, you might have had the bulk of each society, but then there's this area in the middle where they all tended to meet. And, you know, it was a, the rules were different there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's, I just want to. No, that that's, in. that's interesting. Like uh, maybe let's try to come back to that after, after we go through some of the pieces of this, because I'd say that that's actually different from what he's suggesting about, about cultural groups that that sort of subsume local tribes, I'd say mm-hmm. that that's like multiple cultures that are that are you know potentially competitors, but maybe you know under some circumstances we're we're cooperating, and that that might invoke a separate set of things. So that okay. might be interesting to come back to. Fair enough. Um, yeah. So I'm going to de- describe the details of this hypothesis and and empirical evidence along the way that he's integrated. Mm-hmm. Um, this is such a good paper. People should read it. And I'll link, there's a longer version of this as well um, that I'll, I'll link in the show notes too. It's just, it's great stuff. Um, so I'm going to do that. And then we'll come back to the issues of the state and how they might interact here. So to illustrate the adaptive problems under consideration here, uh, Tomasello describes a problem from game theory called uh, the stag hunt. So here's a quote from the paper. Um, Thomas, Thomas Ellis says, quote, human collaborative foraging fits with the general framework of the sag hunt from game theory. Individuals have a safe, low value option available to them, the quote unquote hair, right? Uh, but if they cooperate, they can both benefit from a higher value option, the quote unquote stag. And there are, there are non-animal examples of this, right? Like, um, cooperating to get honey, for instance, that's right. very difficult to do on your own, but you can do it with coordination between multiple people. And it's a high-value food item, obviously. Okay, so continuing with the quote. For cooperation to become an evolutionarily stable strategy, and by this he means a cooperative strategy that will not be outcompeted by other strategies, and thus if it evolves, it'll spread and stabilize in a population. So for cooperation to become an evolutionarily stable strategy in this situation, three basic challenges have to be met, right? And so these are the adaptive problems that would have to be solved by the evolution of, of cognitive mechanisms to promote cooperation. Okay. So three basic challenges. One, there must be a way of sharing the spoils that is mutually satisfactory, and this right. ma- maintains motivation to cooperate. Two, there must be some way of coordinating decisions, right, to ensure right, that right. the cooperation is successful in obtaining the resources. Um, and here we're going to talk about cognitive adaptations to coordinate, among other things. And uh, finally, the third condition is that free riders or cheaters must be excluded from the spoils, right? And this is where cheater detection modules become, not just cheater detection, but punishment of free riding behavior becomes important. 
Okay, so let's let's talk about these three challenges and the evidence that we have, in fact, developed specific cognitive adaptations to address those challenges. Throughout this paper, Tomasello pre- presents data primarily from his own lab, right? He's His career spans decades at this point, and most of his work involves both uh, chimp subjects and uh, young children, young human children. Right. And he designs these uh, these experiments where he he sort of distinguishes between how chimps cooperate and collaborate, which they, they do sometimes, right? In hunting, they, mm-hmm. they will in fact collaborate, um, and how and how children seem seem to do it before they've had you know an adult's experience with sort of learning about social norms and things like that. Right. So that that's a. Uh, that will characterize pretty much all of the of the studies that we talk about. It'll be this comparison between chimps and and uh, human children. All right. So again, that that first uh, that first problem that he's suggesting we have cognitive adaptations to to solve is uh, the sharing the spoils. Right. There have to be a way of sharing the spoils from cooperation that is fair. Right. I mean, even our sense of fairness is probably a result of this. Right. Chimps don't seem to have that in quite the same way that we do. So he opens with a description of chimp hunting. So chimps will often uh, sort of collaborate in order to hunt capuchin monkeys. Mm-hmm. And he he talks about the fact that the process of meat distribution in chimp hunting looks much more like food competition than a dividing of spoils, which is kind of an interesting thing. So like the the thing that seems to determine how much meat you get from a hunt is not how much you contributed or even if you contributed at all. It's just how, how close you were when the kill happens. Right. And so chimps look very competitive, and we'll see that come up again and again. He goes on to describe uh, studies that contrast that chimp behavior with that of human children. So I'm going to tell you about a couple of studies here that are super interesting. In one study, quote, they presented pairs of chimpanzees with out-of-reach food on a platform that could be obtained only if both chimps pulled simultaneously on two ends of a rope. So they have to collaborate in order to get this food reward. When there were two piles of food one in front of each individual, the pair often collaborated successfully. But when there was only one pile of food in the middle of the platform, pulling it in often resulted in the dominant chimp monopolizing all of the food, Mm -hmm. right? So this naturally demotivated um, the subordinate chimp for future collaboration with the individual. And so over the trials in the study, the chimp stopped cooperating on this task, right? Because there's no equitable sharing of spoils, right? right? Now, in contrast, here's what happens when children are given the same basic task. So um, in contrast to the apes, the children collaborated readily both when the food was pre-divided and when it was potential to monopolize the food. Right. And they did that repeatedly over multiple trials. On each trial, the children trusted that they would be able to work out a satisfactory division of spoils at the end, um, almost always an equal split. And that was a direct quote, right? So in other words, unlike chimps, human children spontaneously choose to, to, to be fair in their division when they have both put in collaborative work to obtain something. Right. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So in, in another study using the same study procedure with the, the food on the platforms and the ropes, uh, researchers even more directly examined ch- children versus chimps' tendency to share spoils uh, of specifically collaborative labor, right? And so they had three conditions um, that differed in terms of whether or not there was actual collaboration. Mm-hmm. So this was three-year-old children and chimpanzees. Three-year-old children, Brian. <laughs> what can you do when you're three? Uh, get platforms of food, I guess. I Apparently, <laughs> and you can collaborate and be fair about it. All right, so they presented pairs of three-year-old children and chimpanzees with uh, three different experimental conditions. Again, they're all doing the food platform thing. 
But in one condition, participants simply walked into the room and found three versus one reward at the end of, of the apparatus. Mm-hmm. So it, it's like just by chance. They didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to work for it. They just, one kid got a better food reward than the other one. Right. Right. In that condition, both the children and the chimps were selfish. So the lucky individual almost never shared with the partner. Um, and again, this, this condition involved no labor at all, collaborative or otherwise. In the second condition, there was labor, but it wasn't collaborative. So in this one, each partner pulled his or her own separate rope, and pulling that rope gave them individual rewards. Right. And they were still asymmetrical, so like three to one. Mm-hmm. So one kid got more than the other for doing the same thing. In this condition, the lucky chimpanzee almost, still almost never shared. Right. Um, but the lucky child shared a little bit more. It wasn't it wasn't that often. It was about one third of the time. Right. But they, they still shared, and that's interesting, but still it wasn't that much sharing. So that was no collaborative labor. In the third condition, here we get actual collaborative labor. So Mm -hmm. um, the asymmetrical rewards resulted from an equal collaborative effort from the two participants. And in this case, the lucky chimpanzee still almost never shared. Right. But the lucky child did share with the unlucky child about 80% of the time. Wow. Right. And they say in the paper, the surprising finding is that collaboration engenders equal sharing in children in the way that it is not in chimpanzees, right? And so this is highly suggestive of cognitive adaptations that specifically trigger motivations to share equitably on the basis of collaboration. Right. Um, and undoubtedly, right, you know, sort of in a phenomenological way, that's motivated by, you know, a sense of fairness and justice, right? We seem to develop this pretty early. Mm-hmm. So th- those are just a couple of examples of studies that have been done that are that indicate that we have um, mechanisms to solve that problem of fairness in the stag hunt scenario. Right. Um, so the second problem was that coordination and commitment. So there has to be some way of, of coordinating um, decisions and collaboration to ensure success. Right. And um, yeah, so a couple of examples here. So, quote, when chimpanzees are given the choice of obtaining food by collaborating with a partner or acting alone, they usually choose to act alone. Mm-hmm. And by contrast, young human children most often you choose to collaborate if they're if they're given the option. And so in the study where they demonstrate or in a study where they demonstrate this, they actually set up um, a, a sort of stag versus hare paradigm in mm-hmm. which subjects, this is again, chimps or, or young human children, have the option to either take a hare option alone, not a literal hare. Right, it's just right. a desirable food option or a less desirable food option. So they can either do that alone and neglect to cooperate, or they can forego that option completely and then go for a better food reward, a stag option that does require collaboration. Right. right. Um, so in that paradigm, chimps almost always forewent the hare and bolted for the stag, but without any communication with the partner. So apparently they just assume that like there is going to be collective action to go get the 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 stag option. In contrast, uh, human children, this was four year olds in this case, almost always sort of communicated with their partner before leaving the hair option to right. see if the partner wanted to collaborate. And then, you know, they, they almost always or I think it was always uh, collaborated to get the better food item. Right. Right. So so this and other studies indicate that children and, and some of these have been done in kids as young as 18 months. Wow. Some of these studies, not with that specific paradigm, but studies toward this um, this question of coordination commitment. Mm-hmm. So studies like this indicate that even in, in children as young as 18 months, there is an understanding in human children of joint goals, right? Shared intentions towards some cooperative end. And there's also additional evidence that suggests that children as young as three spontaneously communicate with collaborators to explain themselves if they have to break a previous collaborative commitment. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And so what Tomasello concludes this section by saying, quote, the humans coordinate their decisions in collaborative situations, especially by communication, right, in ways that great apes just don't. Um, Once they have done so, they are committed. There's evidence that they are committed to follow through until everyone gets an equal share of rewards, right? Again, in a way that great apes just do not. And then he goes on to talk about uh, specific evidence that humans, unlike chimps, understand collaborative activity as both joint goals and um, having joint attention during the activity, um, and the evidence that they understand the importance of individual roles and perspectives during collaboration, which is very important, right? Yes. Everybody might have a different role in trying to to get, you know, a beehive, for example, to collect the honey. One person's got to distract the bees and then the other one's got to go get the, the right, hide or whatever. Right. Um, and so there's, again, there've been these, these nice experimental studies illustrating um, an understanding in very young kids of all these different mechanisms. This is the kind of strong evidence you want to see or in comparison to, to apes that we mm-hmm. have unique cognitive architecture to facilitate this kind of collaboration. Okay. And then the last, the last problem that needs to be solved is the exclusion of free riders, right? They have to be excluded from the spoils we need cheater detection mechanisms and norm enforcement right. in order for this to happen. So, so Thomas Ellen notes that in the collaborative stag hunt situations in, in which there is no excess of labor available, free riding is impossible. So um, that's a situation in which either everyone participates or no one reaps rewards. Right. And Tomasello says that um, the earliest manifestations of human collaborative foraging probably weren't vulnerable to free riding because they involved very small numbers of collaborators each of whom believe their participation to be necessary. Right. right? So we don't necessarily get that big threat yet. Right. Uh But then in situations where that's not the case, when there's more, there's more individuals that are actually necessary to perform the hunt, then you get this, this tendency or this vulnerability to free riding. Right. Okay. So he discusses patterns of food sharing in chimps, right? Um, and the biggest variable for chimps uh, in terms of how, how much food they get from a kill, as I said before, seems to just be proximity to the kill. Right. So even bystanders and latecomers get some meat. They mm-hmm. just get less than those who are actually involved in the hunt because they're not quite as close. Right. But there's no, there's no like punishing of free riders. There's no shunning or exclusion. I mean, chimps aren't happy when you, when you take their food, but like, it's in contrast to what happens with humans. Right. So, right. Um, so in one study, for instance, they showed that human children, three years old, reliably excluded someone who chose not to collaborate in a, in a previous task. So they were excluded from future potential collaborations, indicating negative attitudes toward free riders from at least three years of age mm-hmm. um, that we just don't see in the behavior of chimps. And so this suggests that cooperative individuals are more likely to be selected as partners, which has direct fitness benefits. The, the opportunity to participate in a hunt and share spoils versus not, if you're in a, an obligate collaborator situation, could be life or death. And so if free riders are excluded from that, right, that's a, that's a way of making that system robust to cheaters, to free riders. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in other words, right, there's, there's evidence for sensitivity to cheaters and punishment of cheaters, even in, even in very young kids. Okay, so that's he's sort of building the case here um, empirically, right? Each of these is supported with a number of empirical studies. He's building the case empirically that we have these like local adaptations that seem specifically geared to promote cooperation in the way suggested by this game theory um, example, the stack hunt, right? So here's here's where he really gets to the meat, and this is where I think we're going to start to wrap back around to the (laughs) to the anarchism thing, Mm -hmm. right? 
here he's talking about prosocial behavior more broadly and sort of synthesizing things. So he says, in this analysis, the emergence of obligate collaborative foraging in human evolution produced or provided a new basis for prosocial behavior and helping interdependence. The basic idea is that when individuals must collaborate or die, their partners become very valuable to them. And so they must care for them. Right. Mm-hmm. So end quote. So again, like this interdependence hypothesis, I like it a lot. And it's an alternative to other accounts of humans prosociality toward toward non-relatives that I think resolves some things that have always bothered me about the alternative account. So like one, for instance, says that we are kind to strangers essentially by mistake. So they're sort of thinking about this um, situation in which we're, we evolved in these very small human groups, maybe 100 to 200 people. Everybody is, um, you know, you're disproportionately likely to be related to the people that you are in the group with. Right. right? And so we evolved since, or because we evolved in these small, highly related groups and everybody we encountered was likely to be a relative. We therefore evolved mechanisms to essentially be pro-social toward everyone. Right. And then when you get large modern societies, kindness toward strangers is essentially a misfiring of that kin selected adaptation. Right. So, eh, you know, I, yeah. I thought that that was plausible when I heard it. But Thomasello's hypothesis, by contrast, suggests that caring for and maintaining relationships with cooperative non-kin partners, right? And that, you know, by being cooperative oneself, mm-hmm. is in some way like an end in and of itself. And right. I think that that also distinguishes it from the direct reciprocity account of non-kin altruism. And it potentially accounts for kindness towards strangers in a somewhat better way than reciprocity does, right? Because it's not that I'm giving you food at time A so that you then reciprocate at time B. It's that we're both cooperating at time B or at time A to get food that none of that neither of us could possibly get alone. And we're sharing the spoils so that we'll both keep being around because right. we need each other. Right. And so the the thing I like about this is that this suggests that we have developed adaptations, not just to value the things we get from each other, but to inherently value the well-being and survival of other people. Right. And that's nice. It is nice. It is nice. And it also perhaps is another good argument against social Darwinism. Yes. You know, this, yeah. oh, dog-eat-dog world and everybody's scrabbling, you know, and that's that's the only driver, right? They, they, you know, this misinterpretation or misunderstanding of survival of the fittest, right? Oh, yeah. Um, that everyone is just, you know, trying to fuck over everybody else as, as fast as they can in order to scrabble to the top, which yeah. describes narcissists, but not most people. <laughs> yeah, right. And, uh, you know, maybe describe some species, but not one that looks like ours. Right. I mean, there's there's all kinds of, of evidence, and this is just a fraction of it, that like, if we were if we were put in a situation where we had to survive alone mm-hmm. um, out in the woods, right, even if we actually had like, like the best survival skills possible, best survival skills in the world, we would struggle mightily, because we actually have been adapted to be inter- interdependent. Right. And I, I think that there is something like, particularly nice about about this addition in interdependence hypothesis i i really do like it, it's it's i think it resonates with um in when i teach the the direct reciprocity stuff in class it always leaves students with like kind of a gross feeling yeah like that what we're doing is instrumental and so usually what i end up doing is sort of apologize not apologizing for it but i keep i keep telling them like okay this is the reason that the that the um, adaptations might have developed 
It doesn't say anything about approximately why you're doing it, or in other words, what your personal motivations are when you're doing it. And that's the way that I've dealt with it. Uh-huh. And that's still true, right? But like, I, I just, I like what it's adding here, even at an ultimate level, because it's suggesting that the ultimate function of these adaptations is in fact to promote each other's well-being. Right, right. <laughs> right. It does, contra- it does contradict, you know, back to the, uh, uh, what you were saying about the, suppression and propaganda, right? I mean, think about in our popular media, how, you know, we lionize the, uh, you know, the rugged individual that goes it alone and, and, you know, does these things all on their own. And Mm -hmm. it's clear that, that that's propaganda. And because, because actually, so, you know, the, the people that can actually do that are outliers and it may or may not be healthy, uh, for them and clearly not for others. And mm-hmm. also, it, it just doesn't exist in the way that people think that it does. No, it really I mean, doesn't. In some cases, it's it's evidence of a disorder, and in other cases, it's just it just doesn't happen the way you know because yeah. because it ignores this fundamental aspect of interdependence. Yes, yeah, I think it does. I mean the the only the only way that you can really get somebody who is successful as a as a rugged individualist as you as you say is that like these days you know to be successful and thrive is because they're doing it in the in the context yeah. of a society that other people built. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You, yeah, they're you can't, they're, you they're, can't they're, do that shit in the woods. Right. That's exactly. That's a very good yeah. point. Yeah. Um which which billionaires like to forget sometimes. They, I would say intentionally. Should. Yes, they do. Um, yeah, so just just to wrap this up, he t- he talks about he just runs through the evidence that um, that children as young as even one and two years old have been found to be intrinsically motivated to help other people almost indiscriminately, which is interesting. And they do this in a variety of contexts. They will do it at personal cost. So mm-hmm. give a value. Mm-hmm. They'll give a valued resource up to a distressed adult to help them. They you know they'll they'll do this in terms of information sharing without the need of reinforcing it or giving reward. Um, having an audience has no effect on this behavior, so they'll do it whether somebody sees it or not. Right. Um, there's good evidence that young children's helping behavior is motivated by sympathetic concern, which is interesting, and not the desire for some reward. Right. And I want to read just one one quote about this that I think is interesting. So they say, quote, even more dramatically, and they're building on this idea that the, the proximate motivation is sympathetic concern for the other person, wanting the other person to be okay. So they say, quote, even more dramatically, using a direct physiological measure of arousal, which is pupil dilation, one study found that young children are equally satisfied when they help someone in need and when they see that person helped by a third party and more satisfied in both of these cases than when the person is not being helped at all. Hmm. And this is really important to distinguish this hypothesis from the predictions of like direct reciprocity or right. indirect reciprocity as right. being the mechanisms here because direct reciprocity says it's i want to help that person because it's going to help me they're going to help me in the future or i want to help them to gain reputational benefits and this is suggesting no that there's direct value placed on the well-being of others yes so fuck right. you ayn rand Just yeah throw that in there. yeah Sorry. yeah good that's always good to throw yeah that in it once is in a while. right and so then I'll just I'll, I'll end this section on that point, and then we can talk a little bit about the the cultural piece, which is fun. So, um, so he ends the section by saying, "quote So the evolutionary basis of this prosocial behavior might be the interdependence of individuals who need one another for foraging ses- success, and so they are naturally concerned with each other's welfare. The proximate psychological motivation of individuals, however, seemingly does not involve considerations of this type. It is simply intrinsically 
motivating to help others when possible. Interesting. I, I like that. That's a, so, you know, according to someone who has studied this behavior for decades in his lab, and I think done really nice work on it, he, I think, would criticize the criticism of anarchism that says that no, humans at base are fundamentally selfish and would and would uh, kill everybody and take their stuff if we didn't have a state. I don't think Tomasello would agree with that. Right. Um, so and most anthropologists who study this do not. So fuck you, Ayn Rand. I said say it again. So. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yeah. That's that's um, that's that's fascinating. All right. So all of all of this was evidence for um, that obligate. Um, collaboration piece. That was all the step one that right. happened in our evolution, according to this hypothesis. The The second thing that he said happened um, was that we scaled up our, our collaboration. So he, he begins a section by saying, quote, the small scale ad hoc collaborative foraging characteristic of early humans was a stable adaptive strategy for a while. Right. Close quote. And he said he suggests that this was destabilized by two things. The first one was competition with other groups of humans which required loosely structured groups of collaborators to turn into more tightly knit social groups. So that was the first thing that destabilized it was intergroup competition. Right. And then the second thing that he said destabilized this was population size. Okay. So he says, quote, as human populations grew, they tended to split into smaller groupings, leading to so-called tribal organizations in which a number of different social groupings were still a single supergroup or culture. Right. And then he goes on to talk about um, how important it was, you know, given these two things, intergroup competition and population size, he talks about how important it was to recognize others from one's own cultural group, right? With mm-hmm. with whom people probably have widely different levels of contact. Right. So you'll have lots of contact with your sort of more insular group of maybe 100 people, maybe less. But mm-hmm. in terms of other people who are in your culture, but not your tribe, you may very rarely see some of them. Yes. But you need to be able to distinguish them from other cultures, other supergroups, uh, because they are your most trustworthy collaborators. Mm-hmm. And so he says, quote, uh, contemporary humans may have many diverse ways of marking group identity. Yes, they do, Brian. Um, <laughs> but one can imagine that the original ways were mainly behavioral. People who talk like me, prepare food like me, and otherwise share my cultural practices are very likely members of my cultural group. Right. Um, and this, there is, I, I did, uh, I did quite a bit of reading beyond just this paper, uh, sort of looking at this and like, yeah, there does, there's been a lot of anthropological work that's looking at uh, cultural differences in like attire, all kinds of things, simply as potentially an expression of this adaptation to mark your own group, to right. make your people distinguishable from from protect, potential competing humans, mm-hmm. which is super interesting. And then he's got he's got several sections in which he talks about a number of social adaptations through this lens, right? In terms of us becoming cultural animals in addition to just obligate collaborators. And so one thing he talks about here is conformity. Okay. So yeah, maybe we could uh, talk a little bit about this in connection to the anarchism piece. Yeah. So he says he says uh, quote early human skill uh, skill of imitation became modern humans active conformity both to coordinate activities more effectively with in group strangers and to display group identity so that others will choose me as a knowledgeable and trustworthy partner right teaching others the proper way to do things perhaps especially one's children became a good way to assist their functioning in the group and ensure even more conformity in the process okay. Right? 
And then he describes some some super cool um, conformity experiments where the the participants will watch. This is again chimps and humans, but they'll watch um, another chimp or another human, depending, put like a ball into a hole to get a reward, mm-hmm. and they'll see several of them do this. And the DV is like, do they go with the majority, right? Or do they do they go for the person who doesn't conform? So like three out of the four will will put the ball in one hole and get a reward, and one, only one will do the other one. Mm-hmm. And what they found was that both chimps and humans conform to the majority, but in another variation, right? In addition to observing um, others, the chimps and humans had the opportunity to have previous experience with this task, right? So they got to put a ball into a particular hole and get a free right. reward, right? And then they observed other individuals put balls into a different hole and get a better reward, mm-hmm. right? And so whereas the chimps disregarded their observations, the majority, and just put the ball into the hole that they had had previous success with, despite, right. again, that being a lesser reward, the human children conformed right. they went the, with the behavior of the majority, right? Right. They also he also talked about evidence that five year old children, but not chimps, are more conforming and prosocial when they are uh, being watched than when they are alone, and this is especially true if they are being watched by in group members uh, as opposed to out group members, mm-hmm. right? Um, and again, all of this is absolutely consistent with there being um, sort of two pressures here that favor conformity. One is a concern with being right, which social psychologists call informational influence, because if a lot of people are doing something a particular way. Maybe it's because they know something you don't. Right. And the second pressure being concern for reputation, which is just as important an influence here because you don't want to be ostracized. Right. Right. If you're such an interdependent species, you want you want to be chosen as a collaborator. You want to be integrated in, into your group. Right. And so this is this conformity aspect is another way from uh, in which we differ from chimps. We conform spontaneously. We have strong Im- impulses to conform. It's very hard not to conform. And chimps do not. Interesting. Should we talk about Should we talk about the anarchism thing again? I thought it was kind of interesting that you mentioned that there's oh. um, more conformity among anarchists. Well, yes, there, there's a criticism that uh, uh, by some that anarchists uh, seem to be highly conforming, mm-hmm. um, despite an ideology of nonconformity. And I, I think that through this lens. That that could that could make some sense, or that could be this could be an interesting lens to view that that through, right? Right, right. Because it, it's possible that um, given how much the the societal structure has changed since these conditions, if you are essentially saying like I'm going to reject uh, the state or you know these other kinds of organizing structures and do this thing instead, you're going to see sort of like reversion to these older mechanisms of of marking group identity. And right, such. right. You so you stop looking to the larger group and you become a member of this much smaller group which mm-hmm. you know has 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 a, a a fair number of costs i would say there are social costs associated with it i mean sure. you can you're you're ostracized and 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 sometimes assaulted for it and um you begin to identify with the smaller group i mean yeah. someone that i once knew pointed out used to say that talked about how and this was in in philly in the anarchist scene, how about everybody wore like black clothes? Um, she called them the nuclear winter children because they all wore like dingy black clothes with holes in them. And after I was away from it and stepped back into it, I was like, oh my God, it almost looks like a uniform. Like these people really look very, very similar. Now, yeah. I am not saying that I completely agree 100% with, uh, with those criticisms 
and and it wasn't you know enough to drive me away because because perhaps I conformed or I didn't run afoul of of those uh, mechanisms or practices. Um, yeah, but that's very very interesting. Very yeah, interesting. it is, and like I said, like I think I think I like this because. Um, it's another thing that when we cover it in when I teach social psychology, it's interesting teaching conformity to, uh, you know, a class that is largely, you know, almost all my students are from the U.S., meaning that they they're all from this highly individualistic society. Mm-hmm. And so we stop when we start talking about conformity, and you actually see this in the history of a lot of the research that they're they're setting up these paradigms to make people look stupid, right, right, you know, to show exactly. how how conforming sheep sheeple we are, right, right. And I like. I like teaching the stuff from from more of this lens because I think it it brings us back to what why we have these impulses in the first place. Yeah, and it also it gets us it gets us out of the trap of of heavy metal Satanism or as my one friend said, you know, yelling "fuck" in church. It's like this kind of uh, uh, naive rejectionism. Like I'm going to be a nonconformist. I saw this a lot in punk rock. Oh, the most punk rock thing to do now is to be. Used to be really right wing because I'm now, but you know, like th- Jeez, that, that. That's not a good way to be a not conformist. That that uh, yeah, but that's kind of the mentality. It's 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 this. I'm going to you know, it's taking nonconformity as a virtue in and of itself, and more importantly, not recognizing what you just said that 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 in fact this type of conformity is is uh, uh, arises again. I'll use the word naturally from these from this process or you know yeah. it's, it's inherent in the process and and one last thing is that um it means that the conformity of anarchist groups is not an argument against anarchism and that's no. how it's been used as people said well they claim to be nonconformists but they're really con- they're really conforming so they're really not anarchists and that's that is not understanding all of the things that you just said, that this is how social groups work. And in fact, it's, it's, it's a potentially healthy thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to get too close to the edge of, of naturalistic fallacy type stuff, but like, right. I, I, I think, I think that this stuff is important to say just because there is a net- negative connotation to the word conformity in individualistic right. cultures. And that's, yes. I don't think appropriate. Right. Right. Like, yeah. And you know, um, anarchists, uh, I would say initially when it was, uh, despite the, uh, individualism, I would say individualist anarchism, uh, was a phenomenon that happened when it was reconstituted in the sixties. Um, and with the labor movements, there was a much more collectivist bent to it. Um, still distinguished in my opinion, uh, very significantly from, from communism, but uh, nonetheless, there was that, this element of, collectivism yeah so i'll i'll uh i'll try to move somewhat quick quickly through through some of this other stuff but he's got an experience or he's got a section here where he talks about evidence for you know inclinations to enforce social norms right as as again evidence that we are sort of culturally minded um there's some really interesting stuff here about um you know the fact that children because there's two types of norms right there's like moral norms Right. And so mm-hmm. if children see people violating uh, moral norms, they will they will try to enforce that norm. They'll try to stop the person from doing that. And that doesn't they'll do that regardless of whether somebody is an in-group member or an out-group member. Right. But then you've got you've got these kinds of norms that are just called conventional norms. And that's stuff like, you know, 
way shared dress in a particular right, culture right. or something like that. Totally arbitrary things that are just cultural markers. Right. And what you find is that is that if you if you do a study where you have somebody violate a conventional norm, children will correct the in-group member, but they don't they don't enforce it with the out-group member right. because they're recognizing that as potentially a cultural marker. Uh, which is really interesting. Um, and then he talks again in the same section about enforcing social norms. He talks about self-policing uh, through the experience of like shame and guilt when you when you do something that's potentially pun- punishable, um, as well as displays of guilt and shame as as appeasement mechanisms uh, mm-hmm. to ingratiate oneself, and some other things that are that are super interesting, but that I will I will put to the side. And so then in the in the section on in a section titled group mindedness, he says quote. In all, right, on top of their general skills and inclinations for collaborating with other individuals, modern human beings are also thoroughly group-minded and care deeply for their group as an independent entity. So this was a point, this was, and I, you know, I guess we worked through some of, some of this, um, in our, in our last episode. Um, but this was a point that made me think, directly about about some of what Scott was saying in two cheers about the state directly undermining natural inclinations toward cooperation and caring about our larger social group and, and things like that. Um, so maybe, I don't know if I want to raise this again, because I feel like I've been satisfied on that point. But it just it made me think about the fact that that might not necessarily be true, and that maybe it's more income inequality. But I guess we live in a state that has mechanisms to incentivize that. So right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, we'll leave it at that. Um, yeah, so, that, so that's the bulk of what I wanted to say to address that, that sort of human nature critique. Um, research like this, and this is, this is a very large area of research in both psychology and anthropology, predicts exactly what anarchists already know about spontaneous collaboration, right? It's, this is really nice to hear because, as I said, I, I developed a very strong dislike for the term human nature, and I used to say I don't, I don't accept or make human nature arguments. And this was, again, this was, you know, 30 years ago, but I never really uh, was able to articulate it or formulate it. I mean, I had, I had some, some, some arguments, but weren't as thorough as, as this. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't like that term either. I, I might accidentally slip into it occasionally, but, um, uh, but, but, you know, mutual aid, I mean, this, this is the straightforward prediction from this research. Right, uh, Evans. If people have not listened to "It Could Happen Here," uh, talks a lot about this in in season one and season two, by the way, um, and how you know in the wake of natural disasters, you just see com- communities spontaneously coming together and collaborating. Right, right. Rebecca Solnit was the, the person who um, talked about I forget dis- disaster collectivism or something. She came up with a cool term um, years ago to talk about yeah. this. It's really uh, her her stuff is excellent. Excellent. We should link that in the show notes too, then. Yes. But yeah, so so that that was uh, that was mainly the point that I wanted to make. Yes. The the optimism of, of anarchism, I don't think, is is misplaced. That's very good to hear. Now, this is really it. Really uh, uh, makes me think about these uh, topics in a different way. So that's good. I'm gonna have to think about this stuff for a while, but I think it's very good. Well, what are where are we going next, Brian? Um, I think next we're going to, I do want to talk about, uh, Lewis Mumford a little bit, um, talking about, um, hierarchical, a little bit about scale and talking about, um, um, hierarchical structures in society, which we assume have, have are, are quote unquote natural, right? I mean, this is the argument Mm -hmm. that's been made. Um, I really want to talk a little, a bit about when I say what, what liberals and conservatives both get wrong 
and the, the similarities between capitalism and communism. And this, this comes from the criticism of the state and these, these things that anarchists say are inherent in the state. So we'll get right. back to that topic a little bit. And can't wait. I, we have to talk about corporations. Yes, we do. All right. Next time.